avalanches are dangerous. I mean, avalanche can change everything in seconds. It can destroy everything in front of its path. That's why they post these signs on ski slopes that say, Ski here. It's safe. Don't cross over the fence to that really good-looking white snow that's just begging you to come over there and try it because it may give way and you might find yourself buried under tons of snow. And every year there are some people who just can't resist. They have to take their skis or their snowboard and they've got to go find that fresh powder that nobody's been on yet and then take the big risk, take the big plunge and they end up losing their lives as a result of it because they don't Listen to the signs. They don't heed the warnings. They don't want to stay on the safe slopes. They want to risk it on the tempting terrain that is out there. And when I think about that, I think about the Word of God. And I think about the Word of God like this huge sign that says, live your life based on these truths, live your life in these boundaries, And you'll have a good life. You'll have a safe life. You'll have a secure life. You'll have good relationships. You'll have a good marriage. You'll have real direction for your life. You'll have real purpose. But don't step outside of these words. Don't try to live life counter to these words. Don't buy into what the culture is saying. Because if you do, you might find yourself under an avalanche that will bury you and suck the life right out of you. If I were to ask you this weekend where you're living your life right now, how would you answer that? Are you living your life inbounds? Are you on the safe slope, so to speak? Or are you or your family or your kids or your grandkids, are you guys living your life out on the tempting terrain that's out there that looks so much fun but could end up in a disaster? Are you living your life according to the Word of God and the guidelines that He has set down? Or are you out there risking it based on what you feel and what you think, hoping that you're going to kind of sneak by and, and survive any kind of avalanche that might come your way? Where would you say you are this weekend? You know, the Apostle Paul was a very optimistic guy. I mean, he really was the original positive thinker. And he was so positive because he was so convinced of the reality and the truth of the gospel. He believed that God's work could transform and change anybody's life, transform and change any situation. And he was an example of that because God's word had absolutely transformed his life. He had gone from being a murderous legalist to this man who was willing to lay down his life so that other people could know God's love and know God's grace grace in their lives. But Paul was also a realist. And one of the things that he realized is that in this world, there is evil. And the evil is powerful. And oftentimes the evil presents itself in a very tempting way. Oftentimes it presents itself to us as fun, as exhilarating, as exciting. 
And the danger is that we'll step over into the evil of this world and be consumed by it. Paul was aware that times were changing and that evil was growing. And in chapter 3 of our text this weekend, in 2 Timothy, I want you to notice with me and, and watch with me and read with me the intensity by which Paul points out how evil is growing. It's like he puts his finger in Timothy's chest and says, Now, Timothy... You really need to sit up and pay attention to what I am going to say to you because things are about to get really bad and you don't want to be caught in this evil avalanche that is coming. In a sense, I kind of feel Paul's fingerprint in my own chest kind of saying to me, hey, Dale, you need to pay attention. You need to wake up. You need to realize what's going on around you. Don't get swept up in it. Don't get buried alive with what's taking place in the world. Because evil is growing and evil is at work. It opposes God's goodness, God's gospel, and God's grace. So let's uh, look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to read verses 1 through 9. Here we go. Ready? Paul says, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. Boy, you kind of feel that even now, don't you? I mean, these are not the best of times in many ways. These are difficult times that we're living in. For people who love only themselves and their money, they will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving and unforgiving. They'll slander others and have no self-control. They'll be cruel and hate what is good. They'll betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that, Timothy. Stay away from people like that. They're the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Such women are forever following new teachings, but they are never able to understand the truth. These teachers oppose the truth just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith, but they won't get away with this for long. Someday, everyone will recognize what fools they are, just as with Janus and Jambres. So right away, Paul tells Timothy, I want to talk to you about the last days, because things are really going to get Difficult. Now, when did the last days start? Well, if you want a starting point, you can say that the last days began the moment Jesus was raised from the dead. And we've been living in those last days until Jesus comes again. But Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 24 that the further we go into the last days, evil will intensify, evil will grow in the world. And I think it's fair to say that you can feel that happening in our day and age. I mean, you sense evil growing. You, you sense it taking its root in people's hearts and the heart of the culture. And times are changing and it's kind of scary what's going on around us. And what Paul proceeds to do in this passage is he does an autopsy on human nature. And he basically says, let me expose sinful human nature for you. And Timothy, pay attention because this is what's coming. 
And I would suggest that you and I pay attention because this is what we're living in. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. The first thing he says to us in the passage of Scripture here is that in the last days, there'll be a very difficult time. Verse 2, for people will love only themselves. There's a word for that. It's called narcissism. Narcissism describes an individual or people who use others and use situations for their own benefit. They exploit people. They exploit situations for their own benefit. They are, they, you know, they'll take advantage of a sad situation to bring attention to themselves. They'll take advantage of a, of a good situation to bring attention to themselves. It's all about me. You know, I've got grandkids, love my grandkids so much. But you know, psychologists, they study kids. And, and I don't know how they figure this out, but they say up until about six months of age... A baby sees his or her mother and father and brothers and sisters as an extension of him or herself. They really don't recognize that you're separate from them. They just see you as a means to an end. That is their pleasure and their desire. It's like you're part of them. And the problem we have in our culture today is we've got a whole bunch of babies that haven't grown up. We got a whole bunch of folks that still see other people as an extension of themselves. And when you live in a materialistic world like we do, in a materialistic culture like ours, where the emphasis is on individualism, it is a breeding ground for narcissism. It's a breeding ground for trying to take advantage of others for our own benefit. It's a breeding ground for the philosophy that life is about me. And whatever I can get out of it, Life serves me. And every one of us, including me, has a little bit of narcissism in us, right? I mean, how many of you are guilty of being selfish besides me? Let me see your hands. All right? All of us are. All of us are. But we live in a culture where it's rampant. It's not like there's just a little bit. It's like we've kind of given ourselves over to it. And the question is, what's the countermeasure? I mean, how do you prevent narcissism in your life? What can we do in, our, in the lives of our children and our grandchildren to stem the tide of narcissism, of self-centeredness? And the answer is pretty simple. Instead of thinking about yourself, focus and think about others. So I'm sitting down in Indonesia just a couple of days ago. And I'm teaching a seminary class And there are about uh, 25 students in this class. And I'm talking to them, of all things, about pastoral counseling and and how you help people deal with their emotions. And there's this gal sitting in front of me. And her name is Gita. There's a picture of her that uh, we'll put up. And uh, she's the shorter one. And the taller one was my translator. And that's a whole different story I'll tell you some other time. But but Gita is sitting in front of me. and, and, And Gita is is a fireball. She, I, I wanted to bring her home. She's just full of energy and passionate and loves God. She's like 30 years old. And I was getting to know her through the translator. And what I discovered is she's only been a believer for about seven years. And uh, in those seven years, she's been divorced. Her husband uh, left her. And, and she has a, a daughter who is seven years old. And she could barely make ends meet. So she had to give her daughter over to an orphanage to be taken care of. And in order to see her daughter, she got a job at the orphanage 
And even though she can't sleep in the same room with her daughter, at least she's close to her daughter. And then she also works outside of the orphanage, cleaning houses and whatever she can to make ends meet. And I was sitting there looking at her and realizing I was going to leave. And I thought about just giving her a one-time gift of money. And then God really began to speak to my heart. So you give her a one-time gift of money. Okay, that helps her out for a week or two. She has ongoing needs. What are you going to do about it, Dale? And all of a sudden, I came to terms with my own selfishness. And I thought, yeah, I don't want to just drop a, a, you know, a buck here and then walk away and forget about her. And I felt God really convicting me about you know, making a long-term difference. And so I uh, talked to her through the translator, and I'm adopting her and, and her daughter for the next year, Marcia and I are going to support and encourage them. Now, my wife doesn't know about this yet, so don't go blabbing, all right? <laughs> and I'm not telling you that to say, ooh, look at Dale, look at Dale. It has nothing to do with that, because I could care less what you think. As much as to say, you know, there are opportunities that present themselves to us every day where we can go beyond ourselves and stop thinking about ourselves and start caring and serving others. That's how you stem the tide of narcissism in your life and in your family. So this past week, our Compassion Week, was a great opportunity to, to step out and, and do something about that. And many of you are already involved in blessing and loving and serving others, but that's how you turn that tide around. You stop thinking about yourself And you purposely start thinking about others. Go back to the passage of Scripture. And Paul says to Timothy, For people who love only themselves and their what? Moolah. Money. Everybody say the word money with me. Ready? One, two, three. It hops at uh, 111th. Ready? Money. We love money, don't we? I mean, money's a big deal. Why do people love money? Because money equals power. With money, I can buy things, have things, control things. Money, money gives me status. And we all want power, we all want control, we all want status. And there's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. I mean, money's just paper, it's just, it's just precious metal, that's, that's, that's all it is. Nothing is wrong with money in and of itself. What's wrong with money is the lust and the love for money. What's wrong with money is when I live for money. What's wrong with money is when I take my narcissism and use my money for my own pleasure, my own being, my own, my own background, my own needs. That's when money becomes lethal. That's when money becomes dangerous. And we're living in the results of it, aren't we? In the culture that we're in right now, in the economic crisis that not only we are in, but the world is in, it's all the result of spending money we don't have and borrowing money we can't afford to pay back. And we've gotten ourselves in a pretty deep hole. And the question is, how are we ever going to get out of that hole? That's the big question of the day, isn't it? How are we going to get out of that hole? You know, how do you counter the love of money? The way you counter the love of money is instead of using money for your own benefit and your own self, learn to become a wise steward of the money that God gives to you. That's why the Bible calls us to tithe, to give back a tenth to God to remind us that it's not ours in the first place. It's something that God has given to us. That's why God calls us to live within our means, not to spend more than we make, 
not to borrow money we can't pay back, but to manage what he's given us in a really wise way and invest it in ways that make a difference. And I want to thank the Compass Church because you are a generous congregation. And when I was over there in Vietnam teaching over 40 different pastors, emerging leaders in the church in Vietnam. And when I was in Indonesia teaching over 100, we had to actually had to cap off. There was no space left for the, uh, the pastors that wanted to come in Indonesia. I taught them all morning long and all afternoon. And then in the evening, I went to seminary and I taught there. You know, that was all made possible by you. And at the end of that pastor's conference... Those 100 pastors decided that in the next three years, they are going to touch the lives of over 20,000 Muslims in the city of Pekinbaru, a city of a million people. Why? Because you were generous. You gave those gifts to make a difference. And gifts change lives, like the lives of these little children I want you to look at, who are in Vietnam. You know, Vietnam has a lot of orphans. What happens is a lot of the fathers will go to the big city to get a job and then the fathers start making money and guess what? The fathers don't go home again. And the little kids are left alone with a mom who cannot provide or a mom who abandons them because mammon takes over. Money takes over their soul. You know, when money is used well, it is so powerful, it can accomplish so much. But when it's used selfishly, it's destructive. And I thank you. I, I thank you sincerely. And the people of Vietnam, the Christians in Vietnam and the Christians there in Peru, they thank you for making possible the opportunity that they had the the last couple of weeks to learn and grow and strategize and launch into a mission to change their countries. Thank you so much. Let's look back at the passage of Scripture here. It says, You should notice, Timothy, that in the last days will be very difficult times where people love only themselves and their money. Now listen, he says, They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing, they'll consider nothing sacred. If you were to ask me, Dale, could you find like one word to describe what's going on in all those descriptors? I would use the word entitlement. What's being described there is an attitude of entitlement. An attitude that I deserve whatever I want and nobody should keep it from me. In a narcissistic culture, entitlement fits right in. I deserve all these things. I I deserve to have things in my life. I deserve my pleasure. I deserve my rights. And what that creates is ungratefulness. And what that creates is is a lack of respect for authority. And what that creates is a proud and kind of boasting spirit that Paul describes there. What feeds entitlement? What feeds entitlement is a lack of discipline, a lack of respect, and a lack of accountability. It's a huge problem in our culture with that today, especially among the younger generation. And I don't blame the younger generation for that. I blame the generation before them, my generation, our generation. 
Because what's happened to us, we don't realize it, is we got so involved in the materialistic culture that in order to make all the money that we could, we couldn't spend time with the kids like we wanted to. So what we did is we just started buying them and giving them whatever they wanted, kind of like a pacifier, so that they would kind of be fulfilled with that. Well, we were out there making all that money. Well, now they're coming of age, and they're so used to having everything handed to them that they expect it to continue. But now the money's drying up. And it creates this kind of rebelliousness in their hearts. What's the counter to that? The counter to that is for you and me to discipline and teach our children to respect authority and teach them that you can't have everything you want and to teach them that some things we have to work hard for. And that's how I was raised, how I know my wife was raised, is how we raised our kids. I mean, when my kids were growing up, it was yes, sir, yes, ma'am. When my kids were growing up, the rules of the house were this. When you could get a job, you had to get a job. When you're in high school, you had to have a part-time job. When you went to college, you had to have a part-time job. You had to get good grades. You had to earn a scholarship. I would pay a third of your tuition, and you would pay uh, uh, another third of it, and your scholarships would pay the rest. And my kids graduated, by God's grace, debt-free. Because they learned to work. They learned to earn. They learned and understood the principle that I can't always have everything I want and I'm just not going to wait around for somebody to give it to me. I've got to go out there and I've got you know, to do some work to get it. And folks, if you read the book of Proverbs, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. If you heard the message last weekend... I talked to you about the importance of being in Proverbs, taking your family through it. I wonder how many of you did that, 111th or here at Hobson, tried that with your family. The book of Proverbs is all about practical living. It's all about the stuff we're talking about. It's how you counter that, that uh, avalanche in our culture today. Let's move on. Let's pick it up, verse 3. It says, They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others... And have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. In other words, they'll love corruption. They will betray their friends. In other words, if, if betraying my friend will get me ahead, then I'll backstab my friend just so I can get ahead. We see that in our culture today. Be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. It's a rebellious kind of spirit. It's, again, all about me. It's doing whatever it takes to have whatever I want because I believe I have the rights to have what I want. And uh, if you've been watching the news, you know that the uh, uh, former president of the International Monetary Fund has been accused of, of uh, raping a maid who came into his hotel room. And it appears that the allegations are true but not proven yet. And when I, when I, when I read all about that, I just, I just stood there and, and I was in shock. And I thought to myself, if it's true, if Dominique Strauss-Kahn really did what they say he did. What a fool he is. I mean, here's a guy that was getting ready to run for the president of France. He's like, what, 62, 63 years old. He's powerful. 
He's, he's rich. He's, he's uh, uh, well-known in political circles. He controls, has an awful lot to do with currency and, and the monetary system around the world. I mean, he's got it all there. And this woman walks into his hotel room and he decides to rape her, if that's true. It's like, what on earth was possessing his mind? Why would somebody do something like that? And then I thought about, I thought about David. I thought, David, man, he's like, he's like the king, right? And he's blessed by God. And he has everything a man could ever want. God has blessed him so much. And then one day he steps out and he sees this woman and he decides he wants her even though she's married and he commits adultery with her and he has her husband murdered. I'm like, what is that all about? It's the height of conceit. It's the height of pride. It's the attitude that says, you know what? Nobody's going to tell me what I'm going to do. Nobody can tell me what I can have. I am above the law. Please understand, this is the culture we are living in today. This is the mindset of so many politicians and leaders in our culture today. We want to be the law over others, but we want nobody to be the law over us. And it's a trickle-down effect into the populace. And the counter to that, the counter to that is that there has to be discipline, there has to be consequences. And if the consequences aren't there, then it feeds it, it allows it. When I can buy my way out of it, when I can make a mockery of the judicial system and get, get away with these things, it sends a message to all the other generations, the younger generation. You really don't have to believe there are consequences for life. And, and then you spell the doom and the end of a culture. And Paul says that it's coming. Let's move on. Verse 5. This gets really interesting. They will act religious... Now he's talking about some of these people that he's been describing here. He says, some of them will appear to be very religious. You might even say they're Christian. They'll act religious. Timothy, they might be in your church. But they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. He says, you know what? They, they reject humbling themselves and living their life according to the word of God. But they appear very, very religious because they see religion or Christianity as a means to manipulate people and use people for their own end. Watch this. Verse 6. They are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. He's not referring to all women. He's, he's referring to a subset of women. This would be like the women of Orange. Isn't there a television show like that? Orange County, the women of Orange County, or the women of uh, Jersey, or the women of Atlanta. You know, you ever see them on TV, the reality show? Anybody here know what I'm talking about? Nobody Nobody wants to admit it! But you know you've watched it at least once, because you got to know what's going on, right? You got all these women running around, they got all these, you know, desires, and, you know, they're always talking about sex and money, but they're all looking for, like, Dr. Phil to show up and also solve all their personal moral crises. This is kind of, it's like the women of Ephesus version of the reality show. And, and, you know, they're guilt-ridden, and they're looking for some kind of truth to get the guilt off of them. They're looking for a spiritual Dr. Phil, and... 
these, these, uh, these wise serpents kind of creep into their homes and they say, oh, you know, let me tell you about a philosophy. Let me tell you about a way of life that will unburden you. And they begin to manipulate these women. Verse 7, such women are forever following new teachings, but they're never able to understand the truth because they're always filled with lies. He said, these teachers that come in oppose the truth are just like Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. You say, who are Janus and Jambres? Their names don't appear in the scripture, but according to tradition, and, and Paul verifies it here, they were the Egyptian magicians who tried to counter the miracles that Moses did when he was setting the people free from Egypt in the ten plagues. They were like the counterfeits that tried to oppose him. And so what Paul is saying is, you know, they appear to be religious, but they are counterfeits. Watch, and eventually they'll show you that they are counterfeits. Now, it's one thing when somebody who's not a Christian poses like they're Christian or like they're some kind of religious guru and comes in and and leads people astray. But what really heats me up, what really ticks me off is when it's people within the church itself who prey on the vulnerable and the ignorant and lead them astray. Hey, what time is it anyway? Oh, It's 7.05. And you've been left behind. It's Sunday morning at 111th and you've been left behind. What happened? Doctor, or he's not even a doctor, Harold Camping, an engineer who has this huge radio broadcast, you know, was telling us that Jesus was coming back at 6 p.m. Tonight. This weekend. Well, I guess Harold was wrong. But what really fries me, listen, are the people who were, who were going across the country being filmed by the news crews with their poster boards telling everybody that judgment was here and that the end of time as we know it was upon us. How gullible, how vulnerable. But you know what angers me tonight? I don't, know if I, I don't know if I want to be angry or if I want to cry. Is that in Vietnam, this past couple of weeks, a, a tribe called the Hmong people who live up in the highlands, not, not all really educated, some are, but many are not in the highlands, they were listening to Harold Camping's message, which was being beamed by radio. And they heard him expounding the scriptures in a false and wrong way. And he was telling them that the Lord was coming back on the 21st at 6 p.m. So you know what the Hmong people did? They started selling all their possessions. You know, I don't think Harold Camping sold his ministry or his business. But these poor Hmong people, these poor Vietnamese, started selling all their possessions and they started gathering together. Now, the communist government of Vietnam does not like some of the uh, Central Highland tribal people because they tend to be rather independent. So when the communist government saw the Hmong tribe starting to collect together to await the coming of the Lord Jesus, they came in with helicopters and army and started killing some of the Hmong. Now, how does that glorify God? 
And I don't want, I wouldn't want to stand in Harold Camping's shoes when he has to stand before God and give an account. That's false teaching. And I'm not here to judge whether he's saved or not, but I'm telling you what he did was damnable. It was wrong. And people are, you know, right now, tonight, there are people without homes, without clothes, without their scooters in Vietnam because they believed the lie. They were gullible and they were misled. And it should break our hearts. It should break our hearts. And now for the next couple of weeks, evangelicals will be a laughing stock in the news because, because of, of a man who took the scriptures and abused them and misled so many. And that's what brings home the final verses in such a powerful way. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy, his fingers in his chest. He says, but you must remain faithful to the things you've been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the holy scriptures from childhood, and they have given you wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God, and it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. You know what? The scriptures aren't complicated, folks. There's enough in the scriptures that is simple and plain and so easy to understand. And God says, God says, live your life on that truth. And don't let the avalanche of lies, the avalanche of narcissism, the avalanche of materialism, the avalanche of false teaching plow you under and suffocate the life out of you. Aren't you glad for God's word? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that living in the, in the confusing culture that we're living in today, aren't you glad you've got the compass of God's word to guide and direct you? None of us have to be scared this weekend. None of, us, none of us have to be frightened. None of us have to run for the hills. None of us have to think, oh my goodness, how will I know what is true? The word of God makes it clear. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, I uh, thank you so much for Paul's warning to Timothy that speaks so relevantly to us this weekend. God, we are um, living in a tsunami of deceit. And it's just rising higher and higher. Like the Mississippi overflowing its banks, oh God. Deception is just overflowing, overflowing our nation and our world. But I thank you, oh God, that we don't have to, we don't have to be fooled. We don't have to be consumed by it. I thank you, O God, that you've given us the truth in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And I thank you, O God, that you have given us the truth in your word, like a compass to guide and direct our lives. All you ask us to do is to act on it, and we will know its power. God, I lift up to you 
the Hmong people and the many who tonight are so confused and feel so betrayed. God, I pray that they will not turn their backs on you and not turn their backs on the word, but they will learn from this, O oh God, not to believe a man without seeing what the truth actually says. God, in these days, help us, help us to lead the way by proclaiming the truth that is clearly stated in your word. And we will give you thanks and we will give you shouts of praise in Jesus' name. And all the people said...